when they found themselves without the proper clothing, everybody kind of had to know, oh my God, this is crazy. Listeners, um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we have a return of a very special guest, Prit Batar. Um, he's the author of To Besiege a City, Leningrad, 1941 to 1942. We did an earlier podcast a couple of months ago with Prit when he wrote a book called Meat Grinder. That was about a battle outside of Moscow that basically changed the war between the Germans and the Russians in World War II. It was an incredible story. I urge you to listen to that podcast, Meat Grinder. We tied that very much into the Ukraine situation uh, and the Russian tactics in the Ukraine and their ability to uh, sustain infinite losses and throw man after man and wave after wave of people. We're not going to quite do that because we already covered that issue. Um, so now we're just going to talk about um, this amazing book, To Besiege a City. Um, Prit, we have to ask you this first, going back a little bit, even before Meat Grinder. Where did the fascination um, of the Eastern Front come from for you? Why that versus, you know, the Western Front or the battle in uh, North Africa or the air war or you know any, any of the other fronts in, in World War II? Um, when I was uh, still practicing as a doctor, um, I had an elderly patient who was um, in her early 80s at the time. She was just beginning to uh, develop dementia. Um, she was clearly German in background and in con consultations as her illness worsened, she would start slipping into German. And my German was just about good enough to cope with this and conversations inevitably turned to where she had come from. And she told me about um, fleeing what was then East Prussia, uh, right at the end of the Second World War, and told me her story of leaving her homeland literally under artillery fire. Um, and when I started looking at this, uh, I discovered that there was practically nothing really in detail written about these campaigns uh, in English. Most of the Eastern Front narratives were inevitably about Stalingrad or Kursk or perhaps mm. the Battle of Moscow. But really, though, it seems to me that given the sheer scale of the Eastern Front um, and the number of casualties, the enormous amounts of resources that it consumed for all sides, there was so much unexplored material here. Um, exploring her, her backstory led to my first book, Battleground Prussia, and with each project, there was sufficient material left over to seed another book. And here I am, what, 14, 15 books on, still going. So uh... it, it, it is amazing and it's exhaustive in its research and uh, its detail. One of the things that comes through the two books that I've read, and I, I, I hope to read the additional ones at, at a certain time, is the sheer brutality of the Eastern Front. I, I, page after page in 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 this book uh, to besiege a city is is just the absolute barbarity of of the war between the, the Russians and the Germans, and then you throw in the partisans. There's one page that talks about uh, a soldier trying to a Russian soldier trying to dig in a foxhole to escape the German bombardment. And when he's digging in that foxhole, he uncovers a corpse uh, underneath the, the, the mud. And um, the, the corpse is rotting and stinking. And he moves away so that he can, you know, not dig through the corpse. And when he does that, 
he finds the head inside a helmet of a German, a Russian or German soldier. It's unclear to me which one doesn't matter. It, it, it the corpses, the 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 blood. It, it just it doesn't even seem human that that people could endure such incredible uh, bloodshed and and ferocity of attack and counterattack, attack and counterattack. That's what the book is about. Um, how do you explain the ability of the Russians and the Germans to continue to just brutalize each other in such an incredible manner? It, it, it almost seems otherworldly when you read that from today's perspective. I think that's absolutely right. That's probably the correct expression for it, otherworldly. In the case of Leningrad, the additional problem was not only the brutality of the war, but because of the configuration of the battlefield, a city being besieged, very limited avenues by which the Red Army could attempt to lift the siege, inevitably the battles were going to get fought over the same patches of ground and hence endlessly, you know, churning up corpses from previous uh, failed uh, campaigns. I remember reading, I think it was in um, The Beautiful and the Damned by uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, where one of the characters talks about um, his experiences at the end of the First World War. And he says something broadly along the lines of this current generation, they couldn't do it. Uh, they could maybe do the ba Battle of the Marne and maybe First Ypres. But to endure that for four years took a century of knowing your place, of being conditioned and prepared to fight for king and country, et cetera, et cetera. And on the Eastern Front, we have two armies that are indoctrinated to a degree that those of us who have been privileged enough to grow up in the Western world really have little comprehension of, you know, right. the degree to which um, the state controlled all media, or, or what, what media there was at least, and uh, banned books fairly liberally. The, the degree, you know, in, in Germany, you have the Boy Scout movement replaced by the Hitler Youth. In the Soviet Union, you have the pioneers and the Komsomol, and everything has become so politicized and controlled by the party. So people on both sides are hugely conditioned, um, hugely processed to believing one particular version of reality. And I guess the closest we come to it is is some of the statements that are being made at the moment, for example, uh, in the Middle East by people who are taking very partisan views on one side or the other. Um, and, you know, sitting at a yeah. distance, you can al already sort of you can already you already find, you know, the little question mark forming in your head when you hear some of these words. Imagine how much worse it was in Nazi Germany or in the Soviet Union. Okay, my sense, though, from the book and your other book, too, is a little, a, there were nuances, if you will. The Germans seem to have the the ideological Hitler, um, uh, Third Reich uh, motivation. Um, they were indoctrinated in this, um, you know, anti-Bolshevik, anti-Jewish uh, belief. And then the Liebenstrom, I'm probably mispronouncing it, you know, the desire for more land. They had this sort of philosophical yes. motivation. Whereas it seems like the Russians were just like told to do something and they would have done it. They would have done anything that they were told to do. They're, they never had any freedom of thought. There was the czar, then it was the communist. And, you know, they, they, a lot of these people were from the Urals and, and, and the stands and outside the Russia proper. And they were just kind of like used to, I hate to say it, being cannon fodder 
for for whatever campaign there was. So there was a little bit of a nuanced difference. I don't think they were fighting for communism the same way in the red on the red side as they were fighting for Nazism on the German side. Am I correct or is that wrong? I think there are nuances to that. I think the first point you make is absolutely spot on. I was listening to a podcast about um, the Russian Revolution recently, and the guest speaker was asked um, why uh, the the tiny little fledgling democracies in Russia never really flowered and never took root. And I guess the simple answer is that if you think about any revolution uh, to overthrow an autocratic regime, you know whether it's um, Petrograd in 1917 or Paris in 18 in 1789 you've overthrow one absolutist and soon and very quickly you usually end up with another one and establishing yeah. democracy is actually quite a slow process um the american revolution is probably an exception where you went from uh, uh, autocratic apparently autocratic rule from overseas to uh, a relatively democratic system in one step but that that's really the exception to the rule. Most countries aren't like that. And the Soviet Union had absolutely no tradition of plurality of views, of um, people having the right to dissent, to um, to hold um, opposing views. But the, the issue of fighting for communism is a really interesting one. Inevitably, a lot of the uh, um, Soviet memoirs written during the Soviet era uh, make a huge play about the importance of party leadership in fighting the war. And okay, I will take that with as much a pinch of salt as in, as the next reader. But I think it's worth pointing out that in the um, in the briefings that soldiers were given by their commissars and by political officers immediately before a battle, Quite often, large numbers of young soldiers would then apply to join the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there, you know, it's it's a complicated thing. And again, we we kind of do ourselves a disservice by trying to look at this with our modern Western point of view. Um, and I think people fought for all sorts of reasons. Um, undoubtedly, there is this huge thing in Russia of being scared of speaking truth to power and of just doing what you're told. Even today, you know, these the cliches of these fatalistic Russian peasants that you come across in Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, well, most cliches are based on some fundamental truths. And you can see how with a, a society which for which widespread literacy was only, what, one and a half or two generations old, the task of indoctrinating people and getting them to do as they're told, particularly in the um, in the context of Stalin's purges in the 1930s uh, as reinforcement of what happens if you don't do as you're told, you can see how people did fall into line, even when it meant they were just thrown into these battles and slaughtered in huge numbers. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm on your wavelength here. I've talked about this in the past, you know, it doesn't surprise me that uh, China and Russia are uh, birds of a feather and getting together right now in that not one single person in the history of 5,000 years of Chinese history have ever voted for anybody. (laughs) They've had one after another. They've never had a a Magna Carta, which was in the 13th century, the Western concept that maybe we should limit the king's power. They've never had a vote. The Russians have really, except for you know a couple of votes in the after the fall of the, the Soviet Union, uh, have never voted. They, they don't have any democratic history. They've had one ruler after another. And uh, 
one czar after another, and then the communists came in right away and took over and established this dictatorship of the proletariat. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me that 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 uh, that that occurred uh, on the Eastern Front, but it certainly does result in a fanaticism that I yes. that, that the Western mind. You're quite right. When I read these books, and I also read several other books on the Eastern Front because it has fascinated me too for decades. Unfortunately, they targeted Jews. Uh, more yes. than anybody, as your book points out, the Eisengruppen in the Eastern Front. I mean, most people don't realize that more Jews were killed in, by the, the by a bullet than were in the gas chambers or or killed by burning uh, in the in the ovens. The Eastern Front was a scene of uh, horrific brutality uh, that 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 is indescribable to the human race right now. But we'll we'll move past that quickly. Let's talk about Stalin's purges. That's one of the chapters in in the book that's fascinating. And in reading. You know, to besiege a city, I was amazed at the micromanaging that Stalin uh, versus Hitler uh, engaged in. It was almost like a chess game where uh, the armies were chess pieces and Hitler would come up with a move that made no sense and that was illogical and his generals rolled their eyes and it, it was like kind of like just whimsical craziness that he wanted an army here or there. Uh, it, sometimes the armies didn't even exist or they didn't exist at full strength or half strength. And Stalin yes. did the same thing. He micromanaged battles and let move this division over here, fold this division. Let's move this division. I mean, they didn't, you know, the generals had to go along with it. Like what kind of craziness was that? Why didn't either of them sit back and say, hey, I'd really like to win this. Maybe I should listen to the smartest five generals I have. I could possibly win the war. Instead, they chose to do it themselves, if you would, DIY, you know, generalissimos, resulting in massive destruction of their armies and ultimately defeat for Hitler. What's What was behind that? It's an interesting question, isn't it? And um, you can see parallels between the two sides. One of the fascinating things is if you follow the narrative of the Eastern Front, you could draw a graph that shows as the war um, unfolds and things start to go wrong, uh, Hitler's um, desire to, as you say, micromanage absolutely everything just e escalates steadily. So at the moment, for example, I'm writing about January 45, and you have hopeless positions where an army corps commander tells his army commander, I'm about to be surrounded. I think we need to give up this city. And the army commander says, yeah, you're probably right. He gets onto the army group commander who says, yeah, I'm going to have to discuss this with Berlin. And meanwhile, you know, on the battlefield, events are just progressing while they try to get permission from above to do something that everybody can see, can see needs to be done. But conversely, during the war, um, the, a lot of the disasters of 1941 for the Red Army relate directly to that mindset that brought about the purges with Stalin wanting to control everything and stamp out any dissent. And as the war progresses, Stalin's um, graph line is going in completely the opposite direction. He is giving much more freedom to his commanders. Okay, if you were cynical, you'd say that's because he's already killed the ones he didn't like, and the ones who are left are the ones who have his favor. But by the time you get to summer 1944 onwards, you have certainly front commanders moving and operating with a degree of freedom that would be the envy of their German equivalents, uh, who are now increasingly restricted on what they're permitted to do. I think it's a feature of most absolute dictatorships that because people are scared of stepping out of line and of saying to the boss, boss, I think this is not such a good idea. Um, it becomes really 
easy for the boss to retreat into that megalomaniac mind uh, set where I know better than everybody. Um, nobody's ever told me I'm wrong and therefore I'm going to carry on doing things the way I do. I appreciate that's a very simplistic view, but you can see how the fear that both Stalin and Hitler wielded resulted in massive inhibition in people actually being at all prepared to say, look, this is a dumb thing to be doing. We shouldn't be doing this. And that just reinforced this tendency to do their own stuff. Um, Stalin was at least smart enough to learn, uh, whereas Hitler just got worse and worse. Okay, I hear that. And that's really interesting. And I, I, I agree with that. My question then is, in your assessment, um, were either of them sane? I mean, was Hitler sane? Was Stalin sane? I mean, they, their actions were so crazy to be as the reader of the book. They're uh, on a personal level with their with their purges and their hatreds and their crate and their 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 behavior towards uh, dissent and on every level they they didn't seem rational neither of them uh, and we they've been portrayed as certainly hitler's been portrayed as insane is one part of your book you talk about he flew into an insane quote one of his generals said he flew into insane rage he used the word insane yes. rage so i'm it, it, just as an aside it's a little bit of an aside to the to the to, to the book do you think that they were mentally, you know, what we would define as mentally ill? I mean, were they rational? Because it doesn't appear that way. Well, speaking as um, a former physician, <laughs> um, <laughs> I can say that one of the big differences between uh, the United States um, and the United Kingdom uh, is our laws on firearms. So over here in uh, the UK, if somebody wants to have a gun, uh, the police uh, who license people for firearms might approach that person's doctor to ask if there's any reason why the person shouldn't be given a firearm. And I have to say that if either Hitler or Stalin had been my patients, I would have been questioning whether it was a wise thing to do. Um, it, I wouldn't like to venture into the territory of classifying precisely what form of mental illness they had, but their behavior was so much removed from what you or I would think of as rational thought and, you know, operating within the constraints of behavior that the rest of us pretty much take for granted, that certainly I wouldn't want them to be, you know, in charge of a personal firearm, let alone the armed forces of an entire nation. Um, I imagine we could probably say something similar about several world leaders right now, but there you go. Yeah, probably so. Okay. One of the great chapters is the flawed plans for war chapter. And you basically, you, you kind of like lay it out at the outset that the whole operation of Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia by Germany, was flawed at the outset. The goals were unrealistic. Um, the, the the multiple att the attack on on Leningrad was like almost like a, a diversion that was supposed to take place quickly, and then they could roll that up and move on to Moscow. Um, the overreach, the sending the army to the south. I mean. It, it, it just seems from reading the book that like after a couple of weeks, you would have realized this isn't going to plan. This isn't going to happen the way it's supposed to happen. I'm reading this and going like, why didn't they just withdraw immediately from the battle from Leningrad and move over to Moscow? They might have actually won the war, certainly taken Moscow and destroyed, the, decapitated the, the capital city of, 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 the, the, of the entire Russian uh, world. 
but they didn't. They 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 were so determined to take Leningrad that yes. they spent how many more years taking it than they thought they were going to take, like about three and a half years longer. And at the yes. end of the war, they still hadn't taken it. So, you know, kind of like when did these crazy is this again getting back to the irrationality of Hitler? How did these crazy war plans develop in such an unrealistic fashion? Well, the starting point of, of any military plan is to have an astute understanding about the enemy and what you're facing. Right. Um, and the problem for uh, Barbarossa was twofold. First of all, the estimates of the size of the Red Army were just completely wrong. Um, uh, Kinsel, who was head of intelligence operations in the East, um, he estimated that the Red Army at maximum mobilization might field 200 divisions or equivalents. In the end, by the end of the war, the Red Army had put out probably about twice that number. Um, and he completely underestimated the ability of uh, Soviet industry to up its game in order to manufacture the tanks and guns and aircraft required for such huge mobilization. He made other assumptions which... He didn't even attempt to say, well, this is why I'm making these assumptions. So he said things like, we, we can discount the divisions deployed in Siberia. They won't be deployed in the West. He didn't have any rational, or if he did have rational grounds for that, he failed to put those in the documents. So you start by underestimating the sheer scale of your enemy. And right. then the next problem was that the Germans were hugely influenced by the really poor performance of the Red Army in the Winter War against Finland, where mm. um, Little Finland put up sterling resistance for a long time and slaughtered tens of thousands of Soviet troops. Um, and this left Hitler and his inner circle convinced that they're rubbish, they're really useless, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. Even if the numbers are wrong, we will thrash them. So when the campaign starts, you have, you can imagine there is some staff officer perhaps in Berlin or elsewhere, and as the reports start coming in of we've destroyed this rifle division and this, uh, this tank brigade or whatever, he's crossing them off on his chart. And it looks on paper as if the thing is actually going according to plan. You know, the intention was we will destroy the Red Army within maybe 100, 200 kilometers of the of the frontier. And then we're free to motor on to Leningrad, to motor on into the Caucasus, whatever. There's no one left to oppose us. So whilst the tally of knocked out units is rising at such a dramatic rate, there is a sense of, OK, it's, it's hard work, but it's kind of going according to plan. And, uh -huh. you know, and, he, and by the time you get to the stage where they're serious, there are now serious reservations and people are saying, now, wait a minute, if we have genuinely knocked out 80% of the Red Army, why on earth are they still fighting so hard? By then, you've already overrun such a huge part of uh, European Russia and the Western parts of the Soviet Union that, you, you know, you've kind of not, you've not so much got a tiger by the tail, but you've managed to grab two of its paws too. So you're, le you're left thinking, come on, we can, maybe we can just about finesse this wow. and get away with this. And then by the time you realize you can't, it's way too late to, to back down. There are two aspects, uh, details that are so interesting in the book. One is, of course, that they found out they had no winter clothing. The Germans thought that they would knock everybody out by the fall and so they didn't have winter clothing. And then the Russian winter set in and they froze to death. They had frostbite. They, 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 the, the jeeps, the, the 
tanks didn't start. They were stealing clothes from, they would burn a village or massacre a village. And then yeah. they would take the Russian clothes. That It was just like, when they found themselves without the proper clothing, everybody kind of had to know, oh my God, this is crazy. And then the next little detail that was so amazing in the book is that they, I had no real understanding that the German army lived on horses, that they yeah. used horses yeah. to carry or transport large howitzers and machine guns and other uh, other armaments. I always thought they just, you know, had tanks and trucks. Well, yes, and you'd then, think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. You, you know, it's and then and then of course they didn't have any ability to get fodder for the horses. They had no feed, so the horses started starving to death and dying in the cold. And then of course they had to leave the armaments behind because they they couldn't pull them. They were too heavy, and they would kill themselves pulling them. I mean. I don't know, man. It was like I was in the soldier or I was a general or something and I had no winter clothes and my horses were all dying around me and it was 25 below zero and I had and half my troops had frostbite and there wasn't enough food and they were shooting at me and the Russians, and they weren't dying. I kind of go home. I would, I would have <laughs> said, oh, this is not going well. We got to come up with plan B right now, you know, and well, absolutely. Didn't. No, ab absolutely. The winter clothing thing, just to touch on that, first of all, Please. this is often slightly misinterpreted. The The Germans actually had fairly reasonable, well, not, not huge stocks, but substantial stocks of winter clothing. The real problem was the very limited railway capacity going to the front line. So, you know, you could operate trains to carry ammunition forward, or you could move winter clothing forward or you could move food forward. You couldn't do all three. So something had to give. And quite often the winter clothing was the one that was, you know, given the lowest priority. An additional problem was that that first winter, 41, 42, there was an extremely severe winter, even by the standards of European Russia. And that made matters a great deal worse. Uh, the horse issue, though, is, is something that I've touched on in a couple of my recent books. And I think it's something that people, um, will perhaps come back and revisit in, in rather more detail. A, a 1941 German infantry division had about 4,000 horses on its establishment strength. And these would be used for all sorts of tasks, for liaison officers, for scouting parties, and as you say, for towing equipment. So as these horses start to die off or else they're left behind in areas where there is fodder, of course, this greatly reduces mobility. And this is one of the reasons why when the Germans go into their defensive phase of the war, um, holding back the attempts by the Red Army to break the siege, the initial resistance of these infantry divisions is really quite good. But if they get driven out of those positions, they now lack the mobility uh, in order to pull back with their equipment to a secondary defense line, because either the horses are dead or they've been left in Estonia and Latvia where there's more fodder for them. And remember that it takes about four to five years to grow a draft horse. You know, it's not something that you can replace overnight, particularly when you've mobilized all of your nation's horses in order to invade somewhere in the first place. It's not like, oh, well, you know, the next next year's um, uh, generation will be ready by the spring. Well, they won't because you've mobilized pretty much everything you had. And now you're going to have to wait several years. And of course, they tried to use captured cavalry ponies that they took off the Soviet forces. But that's not really the equivalent of an enormous draft horse. Right. And even then, you've got to feed the poor thing in order to get stuff done. Wow. Okay. Let's talk about um, you write very eloquently and um, 
informatively about the partisan war. This was a huge aspect, it seems, of the entire battle for Leningrad. Um, the Russians had an organized partisan army. Um, they, they selected people and they didn't put them in the regular army. They, they, according to the book, it, they, they organized them into a behind the scenes, uh, behind the front lines army um, with some instructions, some armaments, et cetera. And evidently really an important part of the war, uh, which yes. is not, you know, which isn't something that we think about. We just think about the big battle facing each other. What what was the point of the partisan war? And was it smart of the Russians to do this? Did it make a difference? Yeah, I think it made a huge difference. Wow. Um the the uh, the Soviets had thought about partisan warfare before the war and had um, started making preparations uh, for stay behind units etc to disrupt an invasion, but when the Stalin purges were at their height, there was a sudden realization that having um, secret caches of weapons lying around the Soviet Union um, might not be good for internal security, particularly as the purges were driven by this paranoia about anti-Stalin plots. So the entire apparatus was pretty much dismantled by the time war broke out and had to be reinvented. And as with many things which are invented in haste, it was done quite badly. You ended up with rival um, chains of command, some going through the Communist Party, some going through the army, some going through the NKVD, which would eventually turn into the KGB after the war. And it took a long time for these to start sorting themselves out and start cooperating and actually combining into a proper command structure. Um, the partisans were enormously uh, aided by the large numbers of Red Army soldiers who were either left behind deliberately or quite often were just stragglers um, during the, the retreats of 1941. And the forests of the western parts of the Soviet Union were just full of abandoned equipment. So these people could arm themselves with relative ease. Getting mm. food was the difficult bit and staying operational and having enough food to keep yourselves alive, it's particularly in that first winter, was uh, a more tricky situation, particularly as the Germans then retaliated by burning down any village that they suspected of giving any aid. Um, and yet, and you know, the um, Soviet accounts after the war made a huge thing about the partisan movement. And they, pro and to my mind, they exaggerated mm. it for, for obvious political reasons. Because if you can portray part of our great victory over Nazi Germany was because ordinary people took up arms yeah. against the enemy. That's a very powerful political message. And they did, and they fought very well, and they disrupted a lot of supply movements, etc., behind the lines. But the but the Soviets exaggerated the efficacy of that. Mm. And I imagine that a lot of the villagers who, according to the memoirs of Soviet generals, were all, you know, unstinting in their support of the partisans, I'm guessing that they kind of went with the flow. So if the yeah. partisans were in top one in one area, they would be happy to support the partisans. When the SS turned up, it would be a matter of, oh, no, nothing to do with us guys. You know, we, we, yeah. we have nothing. Because in the end, they just wanted to survive to the end of whatever was going on. Well, one of the that brings us up to um, another aspect of the book that you point out, which is that this war was a genocidal war on the part of the yes. Wehrmacht against the Russians. Uh, Hitler decided that... Uh, he basically wanted to commit genocide on the entire Russian uh, people. I mean, he wanted them wiped off the face of the earth. They were either Jews or Bolsheviks or both. And yes. so the goal was to free the land up for the Germans to 
farm and moved to because you know the Germany was 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 populated overpopulated in his mind. So it didn't matter that there were reprisals because that was the goal anyway, was to wipe out every village, was to kill every single, I mean, they literally wanted to kill everybody and, and clear the earth or push them into Siberia or make them subhuman slaves. I mean, the vision is, is beyond um, horrendous of what Hitler had in mind for the, for the Russian people. Um, so the partisan war was, was sort of like played into that hands because they were happy to burn a village and, and, and machine gun everybody, weren't they? Yes, they were. And um, in fact, both sides behaved with great ruthlessness. Uh, there were numerous occasions where um, once the partisan movement came under the control of the Red Army, a disciplinary action was taken against local partisan commanders who seemed to be um, more um, energetic in attacking villagers they suspected of supporting the Germans than of attacking the Germans themselves. So, you know, it's a sort of brutal type of warfare that brings out the worst in all sides. But you're absolutely right to, char uh, to characterize the whole of the war in the East as um, an exercise in genocide. Well, the intention was, you know, all the Slavs have to go. Yeah. Um, and you were quite right. The, in, you know, for example, the plans for Warsaw in Poland was to replace Warsaw with a German city of less than 50,000 people, but the plans explicitly stated that the eastern suburbs of modern Warsaw, which are on the other side of the Vistula, those will be used to create a slave colony, which will provide labor for the Aryans who will be living across in the western part. Um, so it was something that was the other thing that's really important to stress here is it was something that was so widespread. It wasn't just the SS who were doing this stuff. The, the Wehrmacht was massively yeah. implicated in every level of the atrocities, whether we're talking about the mass killing of Jews and the rounding up of Jews, whether it's massive anti-partisan sweeps or just arbitrary executions, the, the mistreatment of Soviet prisoners of war. Yeah, they were, you know, afterwards, after the war, there were attempts by German yeah. veterans to portray themselves as, yeah. oh, it wasn't us, it was somebody else. Well, no, it doesn't really hang. It, the, the truth well, of it is they were all involved. Well, they also, that was also, in Nuremberg, they also portrayed themselves, even the, the, the architects of the, yes. of, the, of the Shoah portrayed themselves as, as innocent victims of, you know, somebody higher up. It was always somebody higher up. How many civilians do you think were killed uh, in in the in uh, Barbarossa, uh, not 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 aside from obviously the the military deaths, could you make a number up? I can give you a number. Um, the trouble is, this is something that's widely distorted. So if I say that the Soviet Union lost between twenty and thirty million people um, between nineteen forty one and nineteen forty five, of which about 13 million were servicemen and service women. It gives you an idea of the scale of killing. Now you can say, okay, that's a difference of a third. It's a difference of 10 million. Well, even if you take the lower number, oh, yeah. that's, a, that's a staggering number of people killed. Um, and uh, many of them starved to death. Many were killed in yeah. mass executions. Others were caught up in the crossfire. It was just slaughter on a scale that, defies imagination, really. Well, everything about this book and this war defies the imagination. I, I In the book, you talk about 700,000 Russian soldiers were killed in, in the battle in the Ukraine. 
or made yeah. prisoner or killed 700,000, yes. correct? Yes, and there was, okay. an, a, there was an enormous encirclement battle at, at right. Kiev where I think two and a half million soldiers went into the bag. And horrifically, something like three quarters of these were dead within six months. The Germans just starved them to death. Right. We'll get to that, too. Yeah, I, I think that more soldiers were more people in that battle were killed, one battle, the 700,000 that were killed in the outside of Kiev, than America lost in every single war that it's ever fought. I think our global, since, you know, the War of Independence or something is 400,000. Do you know that number? I believe it's 400,000 Americans, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. It, yeah. Something I, I like think that. It, I, I think you're probably right. Um, when you think that um, the <laughs> the British civilian and military losses in the Second World War came to, I th I think, the number of, of 350, 360,000 comes to mind. Um, when you think that more Soviet citizens died in and around Leningrad alone yeah. than British Empire war dead from both world wars put yeah. together, it's just on a, on a scale that, and this is why I think it's important to stress this, understandably, the English language narrative of the Second World War has concentrated on campaigns where British and American and Canadian and Australian, etc. troops were fighting. But it kind of misses the point that actually the war was being decided in this colossal conflict in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, let's get contemporary for a second. When you read the book and you uh, and you know about the scale of the losses, the 20 million uh, Russians that died in World War II, 13 million uh, military, 7 million civilians, etc., these massive 80 percent. You talk about 80,000 prisoners that were taken prisoner and only 3,000 survived out of the 80,000 in, 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 in a camp that the Germans ran. So 70, 70 uh something thousand people you know perished soldiers perished yes let's get a contemporary i maintain that a lot of this is in their baked into their memory of what's going on in ukraine absolutely and, yep. okay <laughs> it's yep. just the the, the brutality the barbarity the the law willing to tolerate losses this battle i can't pronounce avika please pronounce this one the latest one yeah advivka avivka once again, they're throwing, you know, troops without proper training, yes. without proper equipment. People are saying they haven't even eaten in a week or something. They're throwing troop after troop after to, to the Ukrainians. They're mowing them down. They're blowing up their tanks. They're, they're, they're slaughtering them. They, they're almost going to run out of bullets killing these Russians, it sounds like. They're, their biggest fear is they'll overwhelm them and they won't be able to kill enough. This has to be baked into the DNA of 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 Putin and 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 understanding barbarity, he understands the world and its coldness and its cruelty and its evilness at a level that we just don't understand. Is there any validity validity to that print? I think there's a lot of validity to that, and and I think part of the answer is during the period from 1945 to the modern era, um, most of the nations of the Western world evolved. So, you know, for example, the um, that great Ridley Scott movie, Black Hawk Down, when you when you watch that, uh, the, the you know, the battle in Mogadishu, um, I can't remember the exact number of U.S. Rangers who were killed, but it was, I think, fewer, well under 100. Mm -hmm. And they accounted for several thousand insurgents. In any conflict in history, that would have been regarded as a great victory. And yet mm -hmm. that was an unacceptable level of casualties. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel that 
perhaps as a because of the fossilization of the Soviet era, the Soviet Union or the people of the Soviet Union, their, their social mindset never really moved on That's from brilliant. tolerating those huge losses of the Second World War. And as a result now, for them, this is how war is fought, if you like, you know. Um, and, and you know, even in the Second World War, for example, uh, the endless arguments by you know made by Stalin demanding that the Western Allies commence a second front. Mm -hmm. At one point, Churchill apparently said to Stalin or, or his representative, "Look, if we go too soon, this thing will end in disaster, and we could lose one hundred and thirty thousand men and not achieve anything." And for the Soviet side, who for whom 130,000 casualties in every single operation they mounted was entirely normal. Their, their reaction was, that's not an excuse. You know, <laughs> what, what sort of justification is that? You know, and, and even at that stage, there was this enormous divergence. And I think the West has moved even further away from tolerating losses, whereas yes. the, the, the because of that, that long, long period of fossilization in the Soviet era, I think that sort of development of intolerance of such losses just hasn't taken place um, in Russian society. That is so smart. Fossilization, I think that that's such a brilliant description of, of how I view, you know, it's, it's a lot of what's happened in the Soviet Union. Uh, and those people who, quote, aren't fossilized have left. I mean, you know, they got in their oh, yes. cars, you know, yes. they got in their cars in day one and they, they drove to Istanbul and Armenia and, you know, yes. wherever, you know, wherever they could get get the hell out of them. We all saw those long lines. You know, they knew exactly what was going to go on because they, you know, they were But again, there. There is a, there, there's an interesting parallel here because I have some contacts in Russia who I still keep in touch with. And you can imagine they are from what you might regard as the intelligentsia. They tend to be fairly hostile to Putin and to, and to the war, but they keep their heads down for very obvious reasons. Oh, yeah. And they are, as a, as a society, as a class within society, if you like, they are regarded with grave suspicion by oh, yeah. ordinary ordinary Russians who regard yeah. them as almost traitorous for, you know, you've become soft and too liberal and too westernized. Um, and they see all of this as a bad thing, you know. Yeah, well, that's also a European thing. I mean, you know, the French hate rich people. You know, they <laughs> they, they do. They 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 really don't like if you're successful and you really build a big business and you make a lot of money. They think you took it from somebody and you did something evil. I mean, it's that's a, very much a European thing. I think they think it's from the king. Um, let me wrap up, but let me tell you the other thing that this book did for me, and and uh, the, it, it, in its own crazy way, it's a very existential experience to read books like this and certainly this book um is is it it, it makes you actually think that you live in a bubble I, I, very much to, so you know to besiege a city leningrad 1941 1942 by Pritpatar, it just you know my life has been so ridiculously soft this post grew up in post-war america big cars in the driveway an affluent suburb yes. you know in the east coast you know, plenty of food, lots of clothing, you know, summer camp, oh, this nice life in America that I grew up in. I mean, you just read what other people's lives were like, starving to death in 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 in, uh, in Leningrad and just shot up and wounded and massacred. And you, you just look at this and you go, what kind of bubble did I live in? I lived in this, I live in a bubble. I still live in a bubble. 
and it just profoundly changes me for the time that I'm reading it. Of course, I'll go back to my normal ridiculous self, but it profoundly changes me for the time I'm reading it and, and gives me a pause to really what humanity is really like, what, 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 what the human race is really capable of and what most people experience, not what I experienced, is what they experienced. So there's something about something about and i don't know how you function because you're probably researching the next book and how many hours a week do you how many hours a week do you research this i kind of live and breathe this all the time you uh, know, obviously but, you do to write you know, 14 books on the eastern front it was a loaded question i said trick I mean, question and you, you know, fell each, for each, it. <laughs> all the time I'm, I'm 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 sort of kind of thinking about the next one and already reading it. but, but it, i think it's a very good point that you make and i and one of the things that um this is of course volume one of two volumes on Leningrad. The next one comes oh, out next year, right. which takes the story on Thank to you. the end of the war, and in particular talks about the legacy of the siege after the war. So if we just fast forward from the end of the war all the way to 1991 and the fall of the Soviet Union, you may recall um, the business of we want to rename the city St. Petersburg again. We want to get rid of the name Leningrad because of its association with the, fa the fallen Soviet Union. Yeah. A lot of people who campaigned against that were saying, well, this is this is a stain upon the memory of the people who fought there, right. who endured the siege, etc. What I one thing I found absolutely astonishing and utterly surprising was that amongst the survivors of the siege of Leningrad, there was actually complete ambivalence about changing the name. Hmm. They, they really didn't care because a lot of their attitude was, you younger people who are telling us about the glory of the memory, you have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea what we went through. And, you know, for us, the city will always be our home. It'll always be what it was. You can call it what you like. And when, you know, we're not at all hung up on that in the way that post-war generations then tried to, if you like, to weaponize and politicize that memory in a way that the Leningraders themselves didn't. Um, yeah. There was, a, a, there was a, a woman who was a teenager in the city during that terrible first winter, and she kept um, a diary of sketches that she made of scenes uh, in the siege. During the Soviet era, she was not permitted to exhibit many of her pictures because yeah. they were seen as being too negative. They were, you know, of people starving or yeah. bodies lying in the streets, etc. The first time that her pictures were displayed um, as a complete collection was in 1991. And cruel irony, it was in Berlin. And a group of German veterans came around to look mm. at the pictures. She showed them around, at the end of which one of them faced her and said, on behalf of my comrades, I want to apologize for what we tried to do. And she replied to him, um, our war was not against you as Germans. It was against fascism. Mm -hmm. and, and she added, there is fascism within us all. Yeah. And when you look at how the legacy of the Soviet Union has unfolded in modern times, those words just come back to me again and again and again. You know, um, there are there are certain traits that just seem to be so much part of the darker side of humanity, and they're just always waiting there to surface.
That is for sure. And, and is is that why also this fascism? Is that why Putin is uh, is, is rallies claiming you know the Ukrainians are all Nazis and fascists? I mean, he's, is he is he really trying to call up the collective memory of World War yes. II and 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 make this an extension of World War II? Well, very much so. And one of the um, one of the stories that is, if you like, it it fits into his narrative is that there was a very strong. Ukrainian nationalist yes. movement that the Germans exploited. And these Ukrainian nationalists were heavily involved in a lot of German war crimes. And they yes. provided the manpower for the Holocaust by bullets, for yep. example. So it's a, it is a narrative that's actu that actually has a core yes. of truth to it and is therefore easy to uh, promulgate. But you're absolutely right. That's why he's doing it. And the and the bitter, bitter irony is that one of the, the most dramatic pictures from the siege is, you know, these Soviet era posters of these sort of stylized figures and these very dramatic yeah. statements. There is there is one of a woman holding a dead child Ooh. and the caption just reads death to the child killers. Yeah. And remember, Putin's mother was was a Blokhardnik. She was in the city during the siege. She would have seen women holding children. Yeah. And now every night, Putin's bombs and rockets fall on Ukrainian cities, killing children. Yeah. And nothing has really changed. No, it really hasn't. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, great, great to hear from you. I, I urge anybody uh, listening and uh, tell their friends beyond listening to. Uh, Get a copy of To Besiege a City, Leningrad, 1941-42 to 42 by Prit Patar. It's an Osprey book, a division of Bloomsbury, and um, it's a powerful read. Thanks, Prit. We'll have you back when you do finish your next book. <laughs> Listeners. Believe it or not, we're on Instagram. Please follow us at OOTB with Jay Russo on Instagram.